0: I'm really thankful for that Christmas program. I, uh, every year when it rolls around, um, I, in some ways I just forget how good it, it is as an experience, not only for those that are in it, for those that are able to experience it. And um, I'm always glad that those that are responsible for it press through the challenges. And this year they were <laughs> they were a ton, as you can imagine. <laughs> you probably were in the midst of it. Um, I'm really thankful for the wisdom of the leadership team in June and July of last year to anticipate possible um, resurgence of the virus and to schedule it for outdoors. Um, we couldn't probably have done it indoors if, um, and had we done it, we, we might have been the subject of quite a bit of scorn. <laughs> so I was glad it was outside. That was great forethought on their part. There were lots of uh, challenges, but there were also lots of testimonies of life change. Um, really, really, really good stuff. Um, It might have been our most expansive reach. Um, The numbers of cars were were a lot less than I was imagining. Um, Maybe 500 total across five, you know, services. I would have thought maybe twice that many. But there were close to 2,000, I don't know if you call them views or clicks or, you know, at least 2,000 people knew where to find us. Whether they watched the whole thing or part of it, I don't know. Um, and th- that number of cars and, and that number of clicks probably amounts to four to 5,000 different people, um, uh, many of whom are probably watching now. It's like um, we're really thankful that you came in whatever form that you did, and we're trying to figure out how to honor those connections and continue to serve you and Love you and figure out how to stay connected. So, help us with that. Be in touch in some different ways. These are hard times for sure. Like, I almost feel like apologizing for COVID. It is is a grinding way to start the new year, isn't it? Like, people, I I feel like I got a text a day, more than that, a couple texts a day of people that had come uh, either uh, been exposed to it or have it or whatever. And then it's just raining. It's like, Happy New Year. <laughs> uh, I, do, I do think, in the, in the, the, my expertise doesn't rise very high in this subject, but everything I'm reading would suggest that this is the, the final wave. Like, this is the last gasp effort of a virus when it starts to mutate. It's looking for new ways to try to devastate, but they um, it become less and less impactful as immunity grows. So we're hopeful of that. Um, just so you know, our policy generally is not to cancel... Uh, Sunday morning unless it's absolutely necessary. We, we just At this stage, we anticipate people like yourselves will self-select to not be here or to be here, um, and we leave that in your court. <clears throat> the only time we will, can, we will cancel is if we don't have the resources to do it, right? So if, if there's not enough teachers or uh, uh, those caretakers in, in the kids' community, um, then we'll cancel that section. And then if we can't, just can't pull off a Sunday morning because I mean, we'll, we'll cancel, but it'll just be because we literally can't do it. Um, so we're, we're in the middle of a series that's going to go on for uh, decades in the book of Mark. Uh, we're calling it the remarkable life of Jesus. We might as well study the life of Jesus for the rest of our lives. It's fine, no matter how long it goes. Um, Mark's a good gospel because he's very succinct. He just says things exactly the way we need to hear them. So we're looking at but we're also doing sort of a subset series with the sub-series within the series, a nested series on our core values, which are to be a worshipful, relational, missional church. We want to talk again. We try to do it every January. What, what is it that God has called us not only to be but to pursue? And when you boil down the teachings of Jesus, he himself said, Love God, love others love those that haven't found their way back to God, to be worshipful, put God first, to, to elevate others above self, to be relational, to love others, and to, and to be interested and care about and pursue those that have been yet to find. So we want to talk about those core values, what it is not only to, to be worshipful, relational, missional, but to pr- be in pursuit of those characteristics, right? So, um, so here we are uh, talking about Jesus... His life, what it means to be worshipable, worshipful inside the context of the study of Jesus' life in the book of Mark. Okay, so I want to show you a photo. This is, some of you may recognize this, many of you won't. This is a picture of um, an East German marathon runner on the right there. His name's Waldemar Sierpinski in 1976 in the streets of uh, Montreal, Canada he broke the, the marathon Olympic marathon record by 50 seconds. <laughs> he crushed it. But he didn't know that he had won. He crossed the finish line, didn't realize he had finished, and he kept on running. He was so focused, he didn't realize it. And the way he put it was, he says, when I saw Shorter, which was Frank Shorter, who was the favorite to win, uh, an American, uh Baltimore knew he was in first place. He knew that. He knew he was way ahead of the pack. Um, but when he saw Frank Shorter stop, <laughs> he realized the race was over, and he had just done an extra lap. The, I'm going to try to, I'm stretching this metaphor. It, it's as much like what it was like for Jesus when his public ministry began to unfold. Let, let me explain what I mean by that. So, religious Jewish scholars, expert practitioners of the commands of God, had advanced God's sort of basic description of a godly life—you know, essentially the Ten Commandments and a few others—into a pretty complex set of behaviors. And it, it, to, to succeed in fulfilling all those commandments, you'd pretty much make it a full-time job. It was very difficult for the average person to actually rise to the level of approval of God in the midst of that system. There were only a few. Everybody else was trying really, really hard. Everybody else was really focused, really trying to do it. They had had allowed, uh, really, the commands of God and the orchestration of those commands, and even their practice, to get them, in in a sense, off course. But they still retained... This very critical element, which was, if we can get this right, this was their understanding, if we could perfectly live out the commands of God and all of what has been laid out for us, then the Messiah will show up. They were, they were in their obedience, in the, in the practicing of this complex set of religious rules and laws, they were trying to facilitate the biggest win ever. The installment of a, of a king like none other, the, the, the messianic era is what, so, so here they are they're awaiting the arrival of who would be the king of kings. He, he would lead the Jewish people into a, a global prominence uh, with, because of like world- class strength, and it would and he would bring all peoples. Into the obedience of God, into the family of God, or be wiped out like you were—you were—you were, you were, you were going to be in God's family, or you were going to be essentially evaporated. This is what they were working toward. They were doing what they were doing in order to usher in this messianic era. And, and like I said, when Jesus showed up, when the mess, when the Messiah arrived. And he pronounced this reality, this life-changing news that God had come near. That was the gospel. That's what we've learned in Mark chapter 1. The good news is the kingdom of God has come near, and it's, and it's me. I've arrived. This is what you've been working toward. And the people just kept racing. They just kept running the same way they were running. It, it, it happened, and, and what he found was people just kept doing what they were doing. They were doing it as though the Messiah hadn't come. Even after after he demonstrated his kingship, his divinity, by being dead for numerous days and then being not dead anymore... Listen to what happened. He told the disciples to meet him. He said, something pretty bad is going to happen. It's hard to explain. You'll know it when it happens. And when it happens, I need you to meet me in the mountains. So a few days after the the crucifixion and the burial, they go to the mountains. And Jesus shows up there, newly minted from the grave. And listen to what happens. The 11 disciples went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Wow. Haven't you ever thought it would be so much easier to believe in Jesus if I could have just been there? If I could have just seen it happen? Here's some guys that were with him for years, saw him crucified. He raises from the dead. And they're like, well, I don't know. That there's something about this life that causes us to doubt the Messiah, to doubt who Jesus is. Whether you were there in the moment or now, there are pulls and pushes from this world that cause us to, to put our allegiance or our confidence somewhere else. See, I, I'm, I'm convinced they, they probably didn't. I'm convinced. This is, how, how, how about this for like... I'm convinced they probably did. Yeah, that's what I'm what is that? Are you convinced, Mike? Or are you? I well, I'm convinced that this might be true. <laughs> <clears> that they, they didn't doubt that it was Jesus and they didn't doubt that he was raised from the dead. What they doubted was that following him would be the best thing for their life, which is understandable because. At this moment in time, the assumption would be, if we follow you, we're going to die. I'm not sure I'm all in here. So what do you do? What happens? You keep running the race you were already running. They've won everything that they'd hoped for. Boom. And they keep running. Here's a good example. Mark chapter 2, about 10 verses right in the middle. I'm going to read straight through these. You might see them on the screen, you might not. So try to focus a lot of like content here. So try to I'll try to read it in such a way you can stay with me. <clears throat> John's disciples, John's disciples and the Pharisees, so those religious scholars were fasting. This is one of the things they did. This is one of the obediences. So people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? but yours are not, right? So why, why are these people obeying the ordinances of God and you, the supposed Messiah, and your disciples are not? He says, Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom, the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot. So as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will take him from them, and that day they will certainly fast. He goes on. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If you do, the 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 new piece will pull away from the old, and it'll tear and make it worse. And and then he goes on, and and he says, and no one pours new wine into old. You see what Jesus is doing. You can really mine these verses for lots of scriptural riches. People talk about what is the old wineskin, what is the new wineskin, what is old wine and new wine, what are, old gar- what are the old garments and the new garments, and you can get into that, and you can find all courts, but what is Jesus saying here? Hey, something is done, and something is new, okay? And, and, and you can't put, the, you got you to be all in for the new, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. They'll burst the skins. If you try to put these things together, the, the old garment is messed up. The new garment gets messed up. The old wine skin gets jacked up. The new wine gets poured all over. You lose everything. You gotta, you gotta move on to the new. He gives them an example. He says, Jesus was walking on one particular Sabbath, and he and his disciples were walking through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain, which is very interesting, because on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to do that. So I'm, my first thought is, why were they doing that? So Jesus leads them right out into a field of grain on the Sabbath. Honestly, that's like... Well, I don't know what that's like, but it, it's, it seems, it seems uh, suspect. There's really nothing you can do in a grain field on the Sabbath, which would be Saturday for them, other than break the law of God. <laughs> There's really nothing else you can do out there. And then they start picking it. And, I'm just, and you know me, I just try to back up from the store and try to imagine what is going on here. And they just like, let's see what he does with this. You know, it's like... <laughs> Anyway, they start picking grain, and the Pharisees are there, which is also very interesting. <laughs> what are the Pharisees doing in a grain field? I think they were just following Jesus and the disciples trying to figure out what's going on, and they see him walking out in a grain field. So here's a chance to catch them doing the wrong thing. And so they're walking along, which had to be <laughs> royally annoying. They're just looking for them to make a mistake, and they do. And they go, what are you doing here, Jesus? Look, look what's going on. Your disciples, not only are they not fasting, they're not, they're not following the rules in this fashion, they're picking grain. And Jesus says, I'm going to paraphrase. If you read your Old Testament, you'll know that David did the same thing. He went similarly, he went in and ate consecrated bread, and not only himself, but he gave it to his companions. And Jesus acknowledged it was only for the priests to do. And he finishes this little teaching with this phrase. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, okay, so there's a ton here. Like I said, you can dig really deeply into this. And I want to pivot eventually... Out of this passage into the idea of worship we won 't get there fully today we 'll finish it up a little bit next week, but this this sets the stage so w- worship just so you know this is kind of a working definition of of worship, informal of course um, this is the way we view it this is the way jesus describes it it 's it's def- it's a deferential posture it 's uh, it's a humbling of yourself, an honoring of something or someone else. It's a trusting posture. That's what worship is. We tend to think of it as singing songs, but it is more about our posture. It's more about when we're singing or when we're serving or when we're praying or when we're reading, what our, uh, our, our view of God and self is, and when we elevate And say, you are the important one, not me. That's what we see as worship. You can detect worship in someone's life. I wouldn't normally call it worship. But you can detect worship of this form in a person's life, oftentimes wrapped around um, the passions of their life, even in your own life. If you think about the passions of your life, something that, that is deeply meaningful to you, if you're not careful, you end up worshiping that thing of which you're passionate about. Everything in your life begins to revolve around that. that that's what worship is. Um, Jesus teaches as part of his ministry um, early on, and, and you can read about it in Matthew, at least particularly Matthew. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What, what is important to you is where you will find your heart and your worship. Look for what's important to you, and and you will oftentimes find your worship. Um, It's a giving over of oneself that results in particular behaviors. Are you tracking with me? Once you give your life to something, it it drives particular behaviors, right? So um, anything, and many of the good things in life are susceptible to becoming sort of the thing. Right. You, can, you can see it in uh, how you raise and protect your children. You can see it at times in how you pursue financial gain. You can see it in the way you pursue and build relationships. These, these are all good things, raising children, um, making money, building relationships. But if they become your all-inclusive Passion, then they get out of whack, and you could rightly say you're worshiping such things: eating, drinking, having fun. But there, does there, it's good; to, it's fine to eat, it's fine to drink, it's fine to have fun, unless it's your whole—you know—you're throwing your whole being into it. When you do that, it's—it's—it's it's, it's worship. You, you, in essence, would be saying to the thing or the the person or whatever, "You are ultimate." You deserve attention, not me. You have my allegiance and my obedience. That, that's, that's, that's worship. So this should immediately prompt you to be like, do I worship anything? You know, <laughs> what, am I, what, am I, what am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? I'm, I'm always dangerously close to worshiping my family, if anything. There's very few other things, that. I, but my family seems to very quickly rise up to the, be the thing that I would give my life for. <clears throat> I have to be careful right there. It, the best, one of the easiest ways to find out what you are potentially worshiping or could eventually worship is to just check the distribution of your time, your energy, and your money. I sat down with a guy one time and said, hey, I really feel like um, my life is out of balance. That something. And I was, just, I was actually a young kid. He was a consultant for one of the big three firms. And I'm like, man, if you can't figure this out, what are you coming to me for? And I said, well, just draw me a pie chart of where you spend your time. <laughs> and he drew it. And it was really accurate. Like three quarters of it was work. And I said, well, I think um, that's your problem. And he literally goes, I can't change that right now so I got to go. And he left. He was like, okay, I get it. This is exa- he was like, I appreciate it. This is exactly why my life is upside down. He knew it. He wouldn't have said, well, I worship my job. But th- that's what was happening. So I'm going on and on about worship here, and this isn't quite yet about worship, but th- that's kind of the context of where we're going. But you will see that what Jesus is addressing here with regard to fasting and the Sabbath is sort of a precursor to worship. You kind of have to go through this idea first to get there. So, so we're talking about fasting. Why, are you fa- why aren't you fasting? They're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. John, you're not fasting. Why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? So one thing for sure is that disciplines of, like, uh, abstinence... It, 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 Withdrawing from or keeping your, or, or separating yourself from something, being abstinent of, is actually part of a healthy, godly life. All through the scriptures, you see God um, ordering things, at least in part, around not partaking or, of something. This is generally good. Like from the garden, even in the garden, don't eat that apple or anything from that tree. Abstain from that. Very attractive, very <laughs> compelling subs, you know, subsistence. Don't go there. You see it. Um, well, we studied it in the beginning of Mark, right? Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he fasts. He doesn't eat for 40 days. Um, you see it all through Paul's teachings about what to stay away from, that you might naturally go toward. He says sometimes you just have to fight that off and, and stay distant from it. Mostly, mostly the biblical abstinences and admonitions have to do with either food or work. Right. That's what the Sabbath... The Sabbath is primarily an absence from work, this sort of thing that gives us a sense of significance and worth... To and then even physical intimacy, those are the primary ones to abstain, not only outside the bounds of marriage, but even inside the bounds of marriage. Sometimes God directs us to abstain, but they're part of the, those things are part of normal rhythm of life, and fasting is kind of a normal rhythm of God. So these normal things of life, God puts the rhythm of separating ourselves from these normal things. Is that, is that making, are you tracking? We can get lost. We can get lost within the rhythms of normal life. We can start to depend on those things. Even if we don't raise them to the level of worship, we can really get wrapped around the axle about all the different things that we have to keep and stay in control of, right? We can really get kind of tight about that stuff. And so you see all through scripture, these admonitions to break away from those things. Why? Well, this is what we're talking about. As long as we're overly dependent or wrongly dependent on the things that are supposed to be just part of life, we've, we, we have, by definition, lost our communion, our dependence on God. So those disciplines are there to just like almost like, oh, Wow. Like, cause so we forget. It's like, is that you know, or is that a problem for you? I oh, don't know. No, no, I can stop whenever I want. You know, it's like it just seems like it's a little out of control. No, I'm good. Trust me, I got, I got control of this. Well, then why don't you try it? And it might not even be a lie. Most of us think, oh, I'm fine. And then you try to separate yourself from it. And it's like, oh my gosh, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> with the, uh, the, the I don't know the Amazon well, which was actually like a Taco Bell driver. I mean, it's, it's amazing who's delivering Amazon packages now. Pulls up and they got like four packages and they're all for me. And she says, somebody got a clicky finger. I was like, what the heck? I was like, no, these are intentional. I wasn't out of control. Get in your, get out of here. I'm gonna pay you for that. You deliver and get gone. You don't know? Fasting can be good. But in the case that they're talking about here in this passage, fasting is this practice of mourning the absence of God. They they are mourning the the absence of God. They're, They're occupied by Rome, for crying out loud. Jesus came into a space where they were occupied. They were oppressed. They had no strength. They had no standing and, and they're, they're waiting for God to, to rescue them. And so they're fasting out of mourning, and they're fasting in order to, to call God upon them. Uh, it, it, in a sense, it symbolizes, it symbolizes hope. Right? It's like we, we fast because we, even though we're occupied, even though things are hard, even though it's raining and COVID is rampant, we have the hope that God will rescue us. That's what we see all through the Old Testament. But then Jesus says, how can the guests of the groom fast while he's with them? Well, of course the father would be, uh, any father would be fasting in a sense as time goes on and their, their daughter's not, not married, doesn't have a suitor, right? It's like, oh my gosh, particularly in these times when that was their ticket to, to life, really. You wouldn't be able to survive without somebody who would marry you and take care of you. And so if your daughter's in order, it's like, oh, there, you'd be fasting, you'd be mourning, you'd be calling upon God, send. And then the groom comes and, will you marry me? And the father's like, oh, it's terrible, I need a groom for my... It's like, wait, he's here. It's like, how would, why would the broom? The guest of the groom, the father, will be fasting when there's a groom there. And so it is. Jesus says, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've waited for for generations. The husband of the people of God has arrived. Why are you fasting? This is how John describes Jesus. Right off the bat, beginning of the Gospel of John, I'm going to read five or six verses here too, kind of clumping them together, cutting some stuff out just to get the major point. Paraphrasing, if you will. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In fact, he was in the world, and to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, to those who worshipped him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not children born of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is John's description of Jesus. And he wraps up this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. This is John saying, we've seen it. with With our own eyes, we've witnessed this Messiah. We've seen his glory. We've seen his majesty. We've seen how amazing he is. The one and only son who came from the Father, Full of grace and of truth. John is saying what Jesus said. The wonderful groom of mankind, God in the flesh, has come. He brings life and he brings light and he brings hope. Everything that you long for, everything that you fasted for, everything that you've abstained in order to see happen has happened. He's here. And Jesus says it this way about himself in the middle of the book of John Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He's saying, Look, I got to be this, I I, I deserve, and I, I am the best thing you could possibly put at the center of your life. But he's saying, I'm here stop running that race and embrace me. we got a whole new thing to do. He says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Somewhere deep down in our soul, we know that the one who created it, the one who's in control of it all, is the only one who can bring life. It's almost like, it's, in my mind, sometimes it's actually simple math. It's only rational that the guy who built the thing, I don't mean to diminish God by calling the guy. I'm using a metaphor, the the guy who built the race car knows how to fix the race car, how to drive the race car to its maximum potential, right? The God who who created it all, including you, obviously is the one who knows how to live this life. And it's the weirdest thing. That in the presence of Jesus, they're still trying to find him. We do the same thing. I've used this illustration far too many times, and I'm probably going to do it till the day I'm no longer breathing. How many of you have an up-and-down relationship with God? You feel good about your relationship with God? You feel bad about your relationship with God? You feel good about your relationship with God? You feel bad. You feel close? You feel distant? Dig into why you feel that way. And I can almost guarantee you, 100%, another one, I almost guarantee you. I'm always always shooting, trying to please everybody all the time. I can almost guarantee you that the reason you feel up or down is your performance. You, you, you've failed to maintain a particular relationship. You've failed to hold a job. You've failed to uh, uh, stay true to the disciplines of your faith. And you, you suddenly recognize that. And then it's like, it's terrible. It's like, these are the old ways. Those are the old ways. It's, it's shocking how many Christians, it's all of us, really, continue to not only put on ourselves, but to put on others the old ways of finding the approval of God. When Jesus has said, there's only one way, it's me. Your approval comes through me. You worship me, you love me, you follow me, you accept me. You're approved of. Your eternity is secure. That's it. But we keep going back to old cloth and old types of fasting and old abstinences and doing things, right, to get God's approval. We do it. Worship begins with Single-eyed belief. Jesus says, there's no other way to come to the Father except by me. Single-eyed belief, a faith-rooted posture that Jesus provides all that we need. And the way to live an abundant life. The problem with that is we can begin to anticipate where Jesus would lead us. And just like the other disciples, we think, well, I don't know if that's really what I want. I don't know if that's the best way to go. And so we doubt. We doubt that the way Jesus says to go about life is the true way to abundant life. So how do we sort this out? Well, this is pretty cool. At the end of this little section here, Jesus talks about the Sabbath. And he doesn't eliminate the Sabbath. He repurposes it. Have you read about David when he... What he did with his companions, they were hungry, he went into need, he entered a house, he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to these people there, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made for you, to help you. Not to crush you, not to restrict you, not to be a burden to you, but to be a blessing to you. It's for you. If the disciplines and the obediences of God end up being anything other than something to facilitate you toward the Son of God, it's wrong. The Sabbath... Abstinence from working, fasting, typically the abstinence of food or drink or whatever, and any other discipline, they are often necessary to disrupt the intoxications and the illusions that we live under. We just get off course, don't we? We just suddenly end up being way too committed, overburdened, focused on things, and fasting, abstinences, Sabbath, whatever the disciplines wake us up and make us realize, oh, I'm running a race. <laughs> I'm running a race here that doesn't need to get run. I need to turn back to God. They, they aren't what bring jesus to you they aren't what bring the approval of god in christ you have that <laughs> so jesus is saying this is the good news you don't have to keep running that race you have it you're just totally distracted come and get it break away from those things don't lollygag around. No, I'm not really connected to these things. I'm totally connected to you, God. That's, that's no, he's like, take a break from this and you'll see. Go ahead. Sabbath. Fast. When you start to lose your place, you start to feel that up and down roller coaster ride. You're lacking peace. The disciplines of God are a recalibration. A reestablishment of your dependence upon God Himself, upon Jesus. You, you could say that the disciplines are necessary, but not for the things that they used to be necessary. Now they just show us how far off we are of where our true devotion needs to be. Here's a great book Celebration of Discipline. Celebration of discipline, celebration of discipline, celebration of discipline. Richard Foster beautiful book about the disciplines. Many of them. Practice them. So let me ask you this. When will you fast next? For how long and from what? I I answer this question the same way I answer anybody who says, hey, I'm going to start working out. And they go, I'm going to do like a thousand push-ups a day. I'm like, maybe you should start with five. still good. It's really the spirit behind it. You can just fast from one meal, but consecrate it. You know, I'm skipping a meal every whatever, or this week. And I'm, gonna, I'm doing it, God, because I want to I wanna recognize where I am and where I need to be and where I'm not. When is your Sabbath? When is the time frame in your week when you will cease striving? I can't tell you how many families I've heard say, not like exactly like this, but kind of like this. I didn't mind the pandemic so much because I wasn't in the rat race. And now I've now got to be running this and running that. And I was like, wow, you have no control. Like, we have, it's what it feels like. Like Unless someone takes it away from us, we're in the rat race. Like, oh, my gosh. We just naturally go there. When, will, when, will, when is your Sabbath? When will you cease striving? Let me give you a second to think about it. Maybe 90 seconds. When will you fast? How long will it be? And from what will it be? When will you Sabbath? When will you cease striving? For how long? And when will it be? Because if we're going to worship... If we're going to truly worship God, we're going to worship the Son. We've got to first know where our attachments truly are. And this is a great way to do it. God, come even in these moments and give us insight. Give us courage. Give us inspiration to... Discipline ourselves for the purposes of finding you right next to us. You're there. You long to give us grace and mercy and life and light. Help us to see what's blocking us. So take some time. Take 90 seconds here. Just ponder some of that. Justin will close in just a minute.